This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, Paul Wraith, chief designer at Ford and the man in charge of the new 2021 Ford Bronco, an icon in the history of automobiles uh, and a legendary car. This was quite a responsibility to come out with something that was so heavily anticipated and so long awaited. And if you haven't seen the new Ford Bronco, I suggest you go online and check it out. They very much hit a bullseye. The car looks great. Its capabilities as an off-road sports utility vehicle are just astonishing. They managed to bring in the base version under $30,000. I don't want to sound like I'm doing a commercial for Ford. And I'm a car guy, not a truck guy. But I have to tell you, I'm really impressed with the way the truck came out. So impressed that I managed to track Paul down at Ford and say, hey, come on the show and let's talk about the process of creating a brand new vehicle like this. I found our conversation absolutely fascinating, and I think you will also. So with no further ado, my conversation with the chief designer at Ford, Paul Wraith. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Paul Wraith. He is the chief designer for the brand new Ford Bronco. Previously, he was chief designer for Ford. He earned his master's degree in vehicle design from the Royal College of Art. Paul Wraith, welcome to Bloomberg. Well, thanks for having me. So let's start with the Bronco briefly. Congratulations are in order. As soon as you guys announced reservations for the first edition, the truck sold out overnight. We're going to spend more time talking about the Bronco, but let's talk a little bit about your career What sort of path does one have to go on to become a car designer? I I think myself and all of my friends who are car designers, colleagues, I think we all have this little infatuation with the car or the truck from sort of year dot. You know, I think typically our first words were probably car. Um, And then we would have been the little kids in the back of the classroom somewhere scribbling uh, pictures of cars into the into our textbooks when we were at school, um, and it sort of stuck with us really. Um, uh, it's it's a sort of compulsion, uh, and unfortunately, some of us are able to uh, get places in design school to develop our skills uh, in you know through uh, degrees and master's degrees, um, and then some of us on top of that are then lucky enough to get positions in the industry and 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 do what we were doing as children as a as a day job, which is. Well, it's amazing, really. Great fun. So you've been with Ford for about 20 years. In 2016, Mm -hmm. you were appointed chief designer for Ford. Tell us what that role encompasses. Chief designer means that essentially I've got more toys to play with. Um, I have (laughs) um, a a large team around me of of very, very talented people. Um, And uh, it better positions one to... Uh, use your your point of view and your experience to you know in, uh, apply to across a much more broad uh, body of work, um, and it's you know it's an exciting challenge and it's a huge responsibility as well. Um, and I you know you bring with you your your prior experience, uh, you bring with you your sort of formative ideas and and a, a wide eyes because uh, you're always taking stuff in and. You know, your ears are tuned in to, to listen to everything that you're being told. And then somehow or other, 
you know, you, you're blessed by having a fantastic group of people to work with. Uh, and then we do our best. We work like, we work really hard and we push like hell and um, we, we produce what we hope will be compelling future vehicles. Huh, quite interesting. I have to imagine you are thinking about different regions of the world differently. How do consumer preferences vary from either North America to Europe or for either of those Western countries to a place like China? How does that fit into the entire design process? It's a fundamental building block. I mean, vehicles are, are owned and used by people, and everyone's different. And um, people's um, can be culturally different by region. And also the circumstances, the situation that they're in can be very different as well. In, in the U.S., we've got a road system that's been, really been framed around the vehicle. Um, go to Europe, and it's, it's been framed around ox you know, in, in sort of medieval area, people uh, moving um, livestock around the uh, sort of wild mm. landscape. So, um, you know, the roads are smaller, they're much more complicated. The city centres are, are very intense. It's a very different situation to here. So once, you know, and the people who live in those environments as well, they have different needs and aspirations. Uh, their circumstances are very different as well. So they may not have a garage to park a vehicle in at all. Uh, so... You, you need to get into the into the skin of the people that you're designing for and as much as you possibly can sort of see the world through their eyes. And I think once you start to do that, the output in your work naturally sort of changes. Um, and it's a really, you know, learning is terrific fun. Um, and experimenting is great fun. And putting your ideas out there to sort of, sort of test them, stress test them is also... Uh, interesting, you know, it can be disappointing sometimes when you when you've got it wrong, but it can also be really energizing when when you when you think you're onto something which is new. Um, and from those kind of insights, we we uh, we hope to design more relevant products that that move the topic, the subject of cars forwards. So that's consumer desires. What about the enthusiast crowd? Do you pay much attention to social media, the press, and then the hardcore? enthusiast community, how do they impact the design and marketing of cars? I would say, first of all, that I was told a long time ago that designers are, are like information filters. We just, we just draw in this wild pile of information. We sort of push it through our brains and somehow it falls out of, that, of our hands and our pens with, um, in a form of cars. We're, like, we're just filtering all this information all the time. Part of that, of course, is what we see in the press what we read um uh, social media plays a really big part on it um and then you you wanted to get the the unsort of fettered word of the of the user and so it's great when you've got an enthusiast base to to tap into and we were really lucky with bonco that we had that so we spent a lot of time you know reading watching listening spending time with going to places you know using the internet um and that was that was a sort of uh, that wasn't a thing that we did uh, now and again. That was something that was happening constantly. Um, uh, we were sharing as, as a team on the Bronco program uh, insights and observations and uh, images and quotes from from social media from the time that we got up in the morning until the time we were going to go to bed um, uh, amongst the team, whether whether we were sharing via text or email. Uh, or uh, or Instagram, kind of a popular means of communication for us as well. So uh, it's really important. Um, and so 
nobody knows the products better than the enthusiast. So, you know, it's good to learn from from them, uh, and then mm-hmm. trying to apply it into our into our our future visions as well. We can't be constrained by it, of course. We can't just do what they know and that they want. We need to also try to stretch the the topic further out so that we're always making progress. Huh, quite fascinating. So. I'm an enthusiast. I have a Jeep Rubicon, and I'm kind of a fan of some of the older Toyota FJs and Ford Broncos and and Land Rover Defender 90s, and all of these have just gone crazy in the collector market. So the question I have for you, what took so long to bring out a new Bronco? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, I think you're right. I think we've seen a shift in the uh, in the in the sort of Classic car market is paying a lot of attention to the vehicles that you just listed. I think we are seeing a shift in the in the sort of public's ambitions for the sort of off-road vehicles that they, that they want. Um, and I think there's there's going to be a lot of growth in the rugged SUV space. Uh, and the Bronco is really well primed for that. So I think there's a little bit of serendipity, if you like, in a way that the, the stars have aligned in, in in just the right way to open the door for Bronco, but the Bronco has never gone away in the minds of the, of the Ford team. I'm sure um, there are people who've been working on um, opportunities to try and get it back for, for a long time, but the circumstances have to be right. Um, and it isn't just a question of someone like me doodling pictures of, uh, of a cool-looking Bronco and hoping that, that that will be enough to sort of kick the program off. Um, before I get to pick my pencil up, there is a, there's an awful lot of work with some super sharp people who take on the colossal undertaking of trying to uh, take all of the, the parts that they know might exist that would help uh, form the vehicle, the, the engine, the platform, or, you know, the wheels, the electronics, the safety systems and so on, overlay that against the legislative framework that we'll drop the vehicle into, the amount of investment required to, to set a vehicle up, the amount of you know resources that we have available, human and financial. You know, is there a factory in the right place at the right time with the right capacity? There is a, a sort of miasma of variables, and if, if you can get all of those sort of all those things to align, and then you see an opportunity for for a segment of the market that's you know not really saturated but has a lot of growth potential, then then um, then it works, and then. I guess we're just really happy that, you know, the stars aligned in the right way this time, such that the, the overall product development team at Ford are able to, to get their teeth into this thing and, and do a, a really good job. There's a lot of passion behind the scenes to try and make it work. And, you know, and I think it's well known that there have been a couple of runs at it in the past. But that in the past, maybe the situation wasn't quite right. Thankfully, right. it was well, this time. And here we are. Yeah, it, it clearly was right this time. It was pretty obvious to me that your bogey was the Jeep Wrangler. They've kind of had that market all all to themselves for a long time. How close do you guys think you came to hitting the mark of what's going to be your you know most direct competition, the Jeep Wrangler? I think whenever you launch a vehicle, there's almost certainly going to be something out there that's a bit like it. Um, it's sometimes it can be a bit of a difficulty when when there's the, your segment comprises of basically one vehicle uh, because that can become too much of an influence. So uh, what I think it did for us is it redoubled our focus on just doing what was right for for us for the Bronco as a brand 
for its uh, legacy and for the uh, the users as well. Of course, we we look at uh, competitive vehicles um, for good and bad. You know, we want to poke holes in them. We want to see what they're doing wrong to see if we can do it better. We want to look at what they're doing right um, and and learn from that as well. But we didn't just um, fixate about one other vehicle. We looked very broadly, in fact, as well. And our and our benchmarking uh, was as <laughs> as wide wide as. Uh, side-by-side, UTVs, you know, they're not even road-registered all the way over to um, the marine industry, products and speedboats. So, um, yeah, we didn't, I don't think we, we really spent a lot of time really thinking, that one vehicle, how can we be like it? Um, we use it as a, as a measure, but really our focus is about what we thought we needed to do. Quite interesting. I really love the 35-inch tires and the mm-hmm. nearly foot-high ground clearance what are some of your favorite design elements from the new Bronco? Uh, you know, that's a really difficult question because uh, you're so invested in all of it. I mean, some of the favorite elements would be the ones that you, you, you felt you had to hype, you know, push for uh, in, in with the greatest sort of vigor. Other things are just ideas that I think just seem to make a lot of sense and are a bit unusual. Um, I, really love, I really love the Bronco Bolt, actually. Um, I love the fact that we have a bolt with Bronco smashed into its head. Um, and whenever you see one of those on a vehicle, it's an invitation for you to get the tool out and get involved with the vehicle and, and undo those bolts and take that part off and either put another one in its place or it's an opportunity for the aftermarket to come in and do something kind of exciting and creative and interesting. I think that's a really interesting um, part because generally, you know, in the contemporary automobile industry, we tend to want do not have exposed bolts all over our vehicles. Right. Um, we like this sort of flush finish. Everything's very discreet and very crafted. We sort of took completely the opposite tack. At the same time as we were coming up with that initial idea, we, we discovered that actually the, the, um, that uh, Ford produced uh, Willis Jeeps during the Second World War. But what stand, keeps the, uh, the, the Ford-produced vehicles different to the others is that each of the bolts on a Ford-produced Jeep have an F bashed into their head. So we thought there was kind of a nice nod and a wink back to the history. I love that part. Um, I, I think I also really love the um, the trail sights on the on the um, leading edge of the front fenders. Uh, the original Bronco had these little peaked fenders. It was a real nice piece of styling, but it was it was also very practical because when you sit behind the wheel of a, an early Bronco, you sort of see these peaks and it tells you exactly where the corner of the vehicle is, the front corner of the vehicle is. So it helps you position the vehicle very well. It's, a, it's a, just a, it's a nice, attractive, iconic piece of very sensible product design. So we decided we would, we would follow the same path. So we have peaks in our fenders, but on top of that, or you know, piercing the fenders, in fact, we have these things called trail sights. And they're like separate parts which you can bolt things to, strap things through, and also use as a visual guide to the corners. Uh, I really like those because they actually solve some, I think, some problems that um, we will all encounter now and again when we're trying to tie things off uh, to the front of our vehicle with ropes running over the hood and the headlights. And they offer up an opportunity for the aftermarket and the public to get involved, uh, uh, finagling original solutions to fit their very specific need. You know, we don't know what all those needs and uh, will be. We don't know what the solutions will be, but we've set the vehicle up in it in that area to um, provide a good platform for them to, to, to do what they need to do to make the vehicle their vehicle. Just make sure no one tries to pull the uh, 
truck out of the mud with those. They have like a 150-pound capacity. That is not where the winch goes, and, and I hope nobody uh, <laughs> makes that mistake. So what sort of additions did you consider but ultimately decide that's just way too impractical? And you have a lot of really interesting things that I imagine were hard to get past upper management. What was just a bridge too far? Well, the cutting room floor is very deep of broken dreams in the car industry. That is 100 uh, percent the case always. But I, maybe in this case, we're, we had to lose fewer ideas because the vehicle that we've, uh, we're producing, the Bronco, uh, we're talking about less than the, 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 the more than the Bronco Sport, but the um, it has a degree of modularity, so you can do things with a vehicle which you couldn't do with a, um, an Escape or a, an Explorer, for example. So you can take the doors off, you can take the roof off, you can put different roofs on, you better put different doors on, uh, you can take the fender flares off, um, you can take, there's multiple bumpers, multiple grills. So the vehicle has got this high level of modularity, so the, fortunately that means that we kept the door open to do lots of cool things. Is there a specific thing that we didn't manage? Do you know what? I, I think credit to the system... Uh, that uh, the, the you know the Ford Motor Company that we managed to 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 keep the door open to the cool ideas. I mean, I'm a designer. I've, I've you know I won't I, I won't be happy till uh, I won't want to retire from this industry until I've made something that flies or has been 3D printed in one go from graphene. So <laughs> our imagination is always is always going to be out there. Um, but I think in a sort of practical sense, um, I think we we. Uh, we managed to accomplish just about everything, which was a, a lot of pressure on the on the team as a whole. Uh, we we set ourselves, you know, more homework than normal, um, and we did everything in the same time as normal. Which you know, for Ford is a, Ford's got an amazing product development process, very fast, very robust. But we just chose to do <laughs> significantly more in the time available than normal. Yeah, so we're pleased. I would imagine the base version comes in. Under $30,000, that's a great bogey. And all told, there are seven models. I was kind of surprised. Big Bend, Black Diamonds, Outer Banks, Badlands, Wild Track, and the first edition, which the initial run has already sold out. Why so many variations? Normally, these things get fed out in year two and year three. Why come out of the gate with so many different choices? I think there's a few things there. So... Well, first of all, we're not using the typical series uh, non-micature. There's no titanium or XLT or any of those things. Um, so Bronco deserves its own series uh, walk. Uh, we chose to use locations instead of uh, you know, abbreviations, uh, which I think is really fun. Um, that becomes a creative opportunity in its own right because uh, our graphics team did an amazing job, actually, on the, the, uh, the series badges. They're all different. Um, they're all placed on the side of the vehicle, not the rear. And the, the cool thing with them is they're actually reflective as well. So when you're on the campsite and you flash a, a light over the mill, they'll pop uh, in the distance, which is really fun. So lots of creative opportunity, even even with those things. Um, but to come back to your original point, um, I think it's important to try and – that our users are so diverse. Um, and in fact, when we started the program, we had we had five target customers in mind. That's that, you know, I, just to, by way of explanation, that's relatively unusual in my experience. In fact, it's completely unusual. Um, you tend to have a target customer 
the target customer for an automobile design tends to be an amalgamation of available statistics um, and, and behaviors sort of created into some sort of virtual human. Um, and it's a little bit, it's a little bit superficial sometimes, but in this particular case, the five people that we were, we were uh, to, trying to design for were very different and they were real, now real people that we'd really spent time with. Uh, so we got to know a little bit and got to observe doing their thing, uh, which we learned a great deal from. And they spanned in, you know, there were both genders from 21 year old to a 50 plus year old guy, um, someone who lived in the city to someone who's just not, ha- and not happy unless they're hanging their truck off the edge of a cliff somewhere. Um, and then when you get down to it and you go, these people are so different, you know what, you, 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 we need to do more to cater for them, hence the greater number of series. Um, and also the different way that we're going to allow customers to uh, add packs to their vehicle to tune it specifically to their needs. And so, as you say, yeah, 35-inch tires and everything, you know, no matter where you buy a base or you buy a, a Badlands, you know, you can get what you need. Quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the design process. Let's use the Bronco as, as an example. How long have you been working on this new car? And is that typical for either a new vehicle or the reintroduction of an older vehicle? Whether we're doing a new new vehicle or reintroducing an iconic nameplate, I think we take pretty much the same amount of time. It's always a very difficult question to answer this one because you'd sort of think that somebody would walk into the studio and say, here, everybody, here's the brief. And then at some indeterminate period in the future, they'll go, thanks very much. This is great. We'll just take this from here. And out it goes. But we have a we have a build-up too, and then we have a, a soft run-out. So the amount of time it takes us to design a, a vehicle is um, is a little bit it's a little bit difficult to tie down. But what I can tell you is, I think it was at uh, the the uh, North American Auto Show 2017, sitting up in the in, in the Cobo Hall in Detroit, looking down at our then CEO, announced the fact that the Bronco was coming back. And I think that's probably for me the point when I, I really, although it was on my plate, that was the bit where I, I, I really thought, actually, you know what? Yeah, this, this, the game is on. As he announced it and the, the screen behind him announced the, the Bronco coming back, I noticed all the journalists' heads around me all sort of went up. They all looked at each other and they all started scribbling furiously and writing text messages. I thought, goodness me, there's an, there's an energy from this. This isn't normal. This is much bigger than uh, I'd sort of anticipated. But you know we don't we don't run away and start making models straight away. We, you know we need to go through a, a heavy period of of learning and absorbing information before we then start to to start really start putting our pen to paper. And for us on this particular project, the putting the pen to paper was was quite unusual. We bent the rules all over the place to uh, to get this vehicle through because although Ford has got a fantastic product development process, we needed to reshape it a little bit to to fit Bronco into it. And so we, we didn't do glamour sketches like the automotive industry typically produces. My designers can all do it. It's just that we had a different focus. The design of the vehicle emerged from tiny doodles on post-it notes and on scraps of paper that was pinned to a wall where we were trying to um, sort of imagine our way through a day in the life of our five customers. And then we were realizing that there were problems along the way in their, this role-playing 
And then we were designing solutions for that. And as a designer puts a pen to the paper, they make something look like something. And it was actually from those little drawings there that there's a glimmer of the design of the vehicle began to emerge. And then we went straight into virtual reality. We didn't make physical properties. Normally, the car industry makes scale clay models, little things that are sort of a yard or so long. We skipped that process entirely, went entirely virtual. And then on our next stage was to make a full-size vehicle, but not one made from modeling clay, which is a typical mod, uh, the car industry medium. We made something out of packing material that we could all get in and out of and stand on and play with and open closed doors and, and modify and hack and immediately start modifying. Um, so we, we did the process somewhat differently, and it was kind of fun. I got into trouble a few times for, for not having things the normal things ready at the normal times, but I had other things which I thought were probably more useful to uh, to learning and experimentation and furthering the, the development process. I read somewhere that one of the VPs at Ford had one of the original Broncos and your team <laughs> took it and did a laser scan and imported it into VR so you could literally get all of the proportions and measurements as a frame of reference? Well, first of all, is that story true? And if it is true, how helpful was that process? Hey, it's really true. That specific Bronco that we used belonged to, um, and still does, belong to my boss, the vice president of design, Maury Callum. And what's terrific about his Bronco is it's actually pretty stock. You know, there's almost no such thing as a standard Bronco any longer. They've all been modified as they pass through the hands of all the owners and through families, and they've changed their, their purpose you know, and parts that needed to be replaced. Well, well Murray's is, is really original, and it's quite beautiful. So it stood as a good reference point to us. In fact, we did scan it. We, we have a very sophisticated equipment that is super accurate. It can pick up the orange peel in the painted surface, scans down to fractions of a millimeter, thousandths of a millimeter. So we did scan it, and we did import it into our, particularly into our engineering CAD software, and it became a layer of information and amongst all the other layers of information that we were dealing with at the time. So we took our best guests on the platform and powertrain and cooling packs. We have all the zones where all of the lights are allowed to go, zones where we think we need to clear points for crash, for example, cone, visibility cones for radar. And there are a myriad of other things that we need to accommodate. If you imagine a sort of CAD engineering software with all these <laughs> multitude of inputs and hovering somewhere in the middle of it all is this 1960s Bronco. It was pretty unusual, actually, to see it. I have to say that, you know, it didn't just sit there preserved. It quickly became chopped up and moved around and elements of it got lifted and reproportioned as we used it as a baseline. But the objective at that point was not to try and make the new Bronco like the old Bronco at all, but it stood as, a, as an excellent bookend and amongst all the other sort of modern-day issues that we're having to sort of deal with. And it served a great purpose. Upon reflection, it was fascinating to bring, bring that vehicle back home, put it back in Product Development Centre in Dearborn, and then sort of interrogate it in that way, and then use it as a, a reference point for a new vehicle. I don't suspect there's been another Bronco used remotely like that. Certainly that original Bronco would have never been designed with any CAD at all. It would have all been drawings and pens. So it was a fun process. I can, I can imagine. You, you keep discussing your team. I'm curious, 
How many people are on a typical design team like the Bronco, and how are they divided up? Are there interior, exterior, powertrain people, electronics people, or does everybody wear a multitude of hats? So from my point of view, I'm responsible for the, the appearance and the sort of product design of the vehicle, interior and exterior as well. And so that team comprised of, of about, well, it varied in numbers, but it was around about 10 to 15 people, all told. Then we have to work very closely with our um, engineering colleagues who are concerned with electrical and interior and exterior and sheet metal experts and lighting experts. And, you know, there's every area of the vehicle you can imagine, there's, there's, a, there's an expert engineering team to work with. So we tend to be in the middle of quite a lot of it because we're sort of trying to glue the overall image of the vehicle together. But fortunately, you know, we've got an extremely talented group of people. We, we had a few more on this project, perhaps, than some other programs, but mainly because of the complexity of it, it required more eyes and more hands on it. Yeah, super talented group of people who actually, some of whom drive their own Broncos every day to work or in a pro, currently in the process of restoring them. So a real enthusiast crowd as well. Huh, quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about the future of, of cars and designs and technology. One of the things I was kind of fascinated by was the Mach-E platform chassis, something that the Mustang Mach-E truck is going to be based on. How versatile is something like that? Are we going to see other vehicles coming out using that platform? And in general, do most car makers like to come out with a, a, a versatile platform that you could put a variety of different vehicles on? Well, I can't comment on future product actions. Of course, I'm sure you'll appreciate this industry is highly secretive, but it is no secret to accept that we need to, that some of the technologies we use in our vehicles are so critical and so expensive to develop that reuse is really important. And so this funny word turns up, platform. You will hear manufacturers talk about platform strategies or which platform is this new vehicle based upon. So a degree of reuse is, is typical in the industry, but the platform can refer to the sort of otherwise usually hidden underbody of the vehicle. It can refer to the electrical infrastructure, the safety systems, uh, and also powertrain as well. So to that point, you know, the Bronco, just, you know, we're launching um, really three Broncos, the Bronco two-door, the Bronco four-door, and the Bronco sport. The, the two and the four-door of sharing a platform with uh, one of our trucks, the Ranger, in fact, but how be it modified and developed and tuned to uh, really suit the, uh, the off-road space that we're, um, we're designing it for. And the Bronco Sport is most closely related to something like the Escape. Very different. Again, it's had vast amounts of investment put into it to ensure that its capability off-road is absolutely staggering, frankly. But that's how you use a platform to enable you to produce more vehicles affordably. Makes a lot of sense. So some manufacturers come up with a very recognizable common design or user interface across their entire product lines. Ford doesn't exactly do this, but when I look at the Bronco, I can imagine elements of that finding its way into other vehicles. What is it about BMW probably more than anybody has a certain design ethos that you see literally in every single vehicle. Tell us a little bit about the decision-making that goes into the idea of a lineup being similar or very, very distinct from each other. You're right. Of course, that sort of family look can be smeared across an entire range of vehicles. And I think for a number of 
years, decades perhaps, we've, we've seen this as being a typical strategy. In fact, Ford have used it as well. But, you know, as our automotive space is, is stretched and we look at vehicles which aren't necessarily, you know, haven't got necessarily four doors and a roof, but have got another form factor to them, there's a point where some of these design languages can become quite challenged. They don't quite make it. It becomes quite difficult to apply that language of a low, sleek sedan, for example, to a semi-truck or to a flying machine or to a robot drone or whatever. So it can become a limitation. And I think we've been quite smart, actually, as a brand in saying, well, you know what? Everyone loves personality. You know, we turn on the TV and we love to see these personalities, these characters that really stand out and look different to one another. Imagine if you watched a chat show and everybody on it was exactly the same. You know, you want to see see differences and it creates tensions and excitement and discourse. And so, you know, we're very lucky at Ford. We've got, we have these nameplates that are so iconic that we can, we can build on and really focus down on. So, you know, Mustang's one, Bronco's another, Transit frankly, is another one on as well. And I think then once you've taken this idea that it's cool, in fact, it's got great potential in its differences, then you, then it frees you to focus down on doing exactly the right thing for that particular nameplate, which is why then, you know, a Bronco doesn't look like a Explorer, for example. You know, it's important that the differences are made. There might be elements of, you know, the Bronco's technology that we potentially could use elsewhere in our, in our system and that would be sensible good business practice to do if it if it offers the customer another vehicle line a tacit improvement but in terms of appearance no we need to do things for bronco that are true to bronco and that's that's how you respect the brand but it's also how you build the brand going forwards so let's talk a little bit about the future might we see at some point a hybrid bronco or a diesel bronco or even an all-electric bronco is that conceivable Again, you know, I can't can't comment on the future product actions. This is a competitive yes. space, but the world, of course, is is moving on. So we're, we're open eyed to to all sorts of eventualities. Very much along those lines, Ford announced a plan to work with Rivian's platform as a way to jumpstart an acceleration towards a either a hybrid or a, an electric future kind of interesting. I don't really recall Ford doing anything like that in recent memory. Is that just a way to hedge their bet against the internal combustion engine? Or is it something new because technology allows you to try things like that that you couldn't do previously? Probably a combination of all of those things. But, you know, we have, that's a very spectacular piece of investment and it's very um, exciting news. But we're working with other companies all the time a lot of their names will be not very common unless you work deep inside the car industry. So I think a manufacturer like Ford wants to do the best, you know, and wants to progress as quickly as possible in a myriad of different directions, depending on the, the needs of the product and the, and the user. I think the, the Riven is just tends to be just a more public version of that. But, um, you know, if we were deep inside the car industry, we could talk about all of the microscopic ones right down to... Um, you know, and the, a small company that might have invented an interesting way of molding a switch. You know, that would also huh. be um, a method of, of trying to advance the subject of car and truck forwards for us versus our competitors. Quite fascinating. You earlier mentioned graphene. How important are materials like graphene 
in creating very lightweight but very strong materials that could be used in, in future products? You know, I've yet to see graphene really being used versus the promises that were, were originally made. But I think the key is that we, we just need to be super open, open-minded and constantly be looking towards. And so, you know, occasionally someone might say, well, you know, well, cars are all the same, don't they? And you go, well, I can't tell you, but the people who are producing them do not necessarily set out to produce something that looks the same as everything else. Their, their eyes are on the future. But, you know, if you're doing a one-off, then, yeah, you can make things out of exotic materials and unobtainium. But, but <laughs> the real challenge for product design is to try and take those principles and then bring them to the everyday person to, and to do it in volume as well. That's a heck of a challenge. And so, you know, you can't blame the chap for dreaming. Those dreams, sometimes they turn into reality. So we'll keep pushing. So let's stick with the issue of reality. When you're early in the design process of, of any product, how are you balancing budget restrictions? And what I mean by that is you have your internal cost structure and you have to work with that, but you also have a targeted MSRP, what the vehicle is going to go on sale for. How do those elements come into play as you work your way through the process? There are people far cleverer than the designers talk about numbers, believe believe. <laughs> I think we we want to make profit-making vehicles, of course we do, and there are lots of different influences upon that. You can't laden a vehicle full of unnecessary componentry that the customer won't appreciate and expect to improve your bottom line. So you've got to be, I think, quite focused on adding things to the vehicle where it's really necessary and where it's going to be really appreciated, first and foremost. And then there's a constant tension between you know, what we're wanting to include versus what we think we can sell it for versus if you add a little bit of additional componentry or something to or feature or technology or material to the vehicle, will that actually make it worth more? You know, will, will, can we command a high price for it out in the market? This debate, this yo-yoing of, of, of uh, factors, is continual throughout the entire process. And we're an active participant in it, but we don't sit there with a calculator trying to work out the percentages we'll make our case for things that we feel quite strongly about and then as a tight team and the you know pd team's really tight you know we can have good frank and open debates about the the merits of one execution versus another and we're constantly looking for efficiencies to make things better but in the case of the bronco i would come back and say that you know we were very open-minded to the sort of less is more approach there's really nothing on the outside of these vehicles that is superfluous or unnecessary or frivolous. And it became a little bit of a, a hobby of mine driving to work in the morning, just looking at the other vehicles around me and thinking, what can I take off that vehicle and that still function as a vehicle? There's things that you can't take off. Obviously, the headlights, you know, they have to be there. But, you know, extraneous pieces of trim, you know, redundant lighting elements, all those sorts of things. It became like a sort of training exercise to leave some excessive elements of car styling behind and to focus exclusively on doing what was right for the Bronco. Really, really, really fun. So um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but first of all, it's, it's really complicated. We, the studio is definitely a part of that debate, and we ultimately come together to produce a vehicle that's going to be very profitable for the company. So there are a number of things beneath the skin of the Bronco that look like they aren't inexpensive. 
So your terrain management system is called GOAT, goes over any terrain. Yep. You have seven different drive modes, creating that cross-beam-free roof. That whole roof comes off from the front of the vehicle all the way to the back. That looks like that was an engineering challenge. The trail turn assist. I mean, there's a lot of off-roading tech built into this. Mm. The inclometer, and including that, the, the ability to have a display on your dashboard of the exact degree of your X, Y, and Z inclinations, none of that stuff looks especially inexpensive. So I'm just curious how you manage to, you know, work all that into a car that the base model is twenty nine nine ninety five. Yeah, so, you know, this is, again, it's about focus, isn't it? So I'd much prefer to have trail turn assist as a feature on the vehicle because I think it's meaningful to the customer than, for example, offer the bumpers in body color, you know, with all the intrinsic complexity and cost that that would drive. You know, so it's all about focus. And I think some of those technologies you just listed are super, super progressive. They're absolutely fantastic. And they will make being off-road an easier, more fulfilling, and more accessible experience. You know, Bronco should be about these amazing stories. We learned this at the beginning of the uh, development process. We, we have these, the beginning of a meeting, everyone's sort of arrived, and there's that little chatty bit before the agenda starts. And it was a typical behavior for people to go, oh, I, I tell people, I tell you what, the Bronco should be like. And then you'd, you'd get these photographs that come out of wallets or the smartphone would come out and it'd be a picture of that person's Bronco or their brother's Bronco or their mum's Bronco or the Bronco picture of their mum and dad when they were, you know, much younger or the one they're looking at on, on, at on um, bring a trailer. Or the models would come out of the pockets, you know, here you go, here's a Hot Wheels, that's what the Bronco should be. What we learned very quickly was that Broncos was about stories, like human stories, rich, enduring stories. And, you know, you can't get to the point where the, the vehicle is going to be able to create new stories unless people are able to access the vehicle and put it into the landscape where those, those stories be written most, most intensely. And so technologies like that that make accessing the wilderness so much easier are critical to the vehicle. It should not look like it can do it but it should not look like it can do it but only in the hands of an expert we should be able to make the experience of being off-road much more open to everybody more democratic so everybody involved in the program although it's not a product design styling design kind of um, element everybody would, would in the studio environment would recognize that those are deeply important and frankly a better trade-off than for example a piece of chrome you know decorative chrome on the outside so we, we work together to produce products, not, not just things that look nice. Huh. Quite, quite fascinating. I, I have another four hours of questions, but I only have <laughs> you for another five minutes. So, so let's jump right to our speed rounds. These are the questions we ask all of our guests. And, and let's start out with a simple question. What are you streaming these days? Give us your favorite Netflix, Amazon Prime shows you're watching or podcasts you might be listening to what is keeping you entertained under lockdown i i watch very little television in all honesty i spend most of my time researching things on uh, social media podcast wise uh, i actually i'm a real fan of motorsport i listen to the bbc's checkered flag uh, formula one uh, podcast i love the sort of references to high technology teamwork and determination that comes through that, that i find that quite inspiring and also, soon I'm going to be listening to the Bring Back Bronco podcast that's going to help 
explain some of the stories of the Broncos. So that I will be listening to. Quite interesting. Tell us about some of your mentors who helped guide your career and helped you uh, arrive where you are today. I probably, uh, I would say, you, you, your family is very good at helping you start. You know, that child who was just fascinated with cars, who fortunately was dragged to uh, places where amazing cars could be seen to sort of feed this fascination. I think that's a good starting point. Some of the tutors that I, I had at uh, my universities were, were really instrumental in, first of all, allowing me to study in the first place, but then also helping encourage my enthusiasm and point it in the right direction. But, you know, more recently, I would say that I won't name names, but I, I would say it's a combination of the many very experienced, very senior people in, uh, in this company who have provided, you know, fantastic guidance and decision-making and the multitude of products that I've been involved with over the years. You know, and it's from, from those insights and encouragement that you, you're able to, to do more, do more accurately and progress. It's, uh, it's not sort of, you know, favoritism. It's, frankly, it's just information, and you use that information in a, in a really useful way to get better. Quite interesting. Tell us about what you're reading. Well, what are you reading currently, or what are some of your previous favorite books? Wired. I read Wired magazine. That's not mm -hmm. a book, but that, that that I always read cover to cover, usually early in the morning with a coffee. 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by uh, Yuval Noah Harari. He's uh, been through that a couple of times, actually. That, that, that I find constantly quite inspiring. And a couple of books by Bill Bryson, actually, particularly on the home. That book was fascinating. Again, I read that over and over. The, the amazing observations about something which is so familiar as a home, your house, you know, a journey through a house, each individual room and where that room came from and what is in that room and where all those inventions came from. That um, simplicity that he's got in explaining things that we just take for granted. Um, it seems like a very good analysis of, of brilliant product design to me. So I, I, that seems to, to, uh, to be on my bedside table quite often. Hmm, quite interesting. What sort of <clears throat> advice would you give to a recent college graduate who was interested in working in the automotive industry? Well, this is advice I give often because um, I'm in the fortunate position to be able to, to employ people from college. And, um, and I guess what I always try and explain is, is not to try and emulate what they think that they should be doing in the car industry, but to um, form a point of view, have a point of view about what they think mobility should be about in the future and hang on to it and then keep, keep driving that forwards and listen most of all, to that little instinct. You know, we've all got it. And we know that it's there because sometimes we'll be in a situation where you go, I knew that was going to happen. Well, rather than be commenting after the effect, we need to listen to that little voice, you know, that very quiet voice much earlier on and act on it and do something in advance of the thing happening. So uh, listen to your instinct, have the point of view and do something with it and basically also work really hard. We have been speaking with Paul Wraith. He is the chief designer for the new Ford Bronco and the chief designer for Ford. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out all of the previous 350 such discussions we've had over the prior six years. You can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Be sure to check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. 
Sign up for our daily reads at Ritholtz.com. Follow us on Twitter at Ritholtz, and be sure to give us a review at Apple iTunes. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this conversation together each week. Uh, Michael Boyle is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Marufal is our audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.